here we are. So I want to tell you about my morning. Um, I've been considering this question for some weeks now of how can we stay um, I'm trying to think of how to put this best. Right? Okay. So all of you are here, right? At yoga church, spending your time. It's just not a normal yoga class. It's a class where we do a lesson and then we move toward the mat and we practice. Often we meditate and we do pranayama. And there's this recognition, right, in doing it this way, that there is more to the practice of yoga than just moving our bodies and having a fitness class, right? And so all of you, in some way, already have awakened to the fact that there is something going on in you where it is not just this body and it is not just this mind and our thoughts and our feelings, but that there is something else going on in this lifetime and that perhaps it might even be that yoga and that even living is a practice, a liberation practice, right? That we are on this earth to get free, right? So that love can pour through us, boundless, unfettered. And so then there's this interesting sort of um, way in which we start to, once we've awakened to that, to use what is happening on our lives, what is on our plate for the day, as a way to get free, right? So everything as we move through our days, it's that threshold that we talk about every class because it's what I'm into. Everything in our life starts to become sacred in this way because we start to see it as just another doorway to liberation, right? And so we begin to welcome, as Rumi says, like throw the door open and don't like just pick and choose the guests, like welcome it all in as fodder for the fire, as fodder for our practice, as something to practice with, right? A lot of times you'll hear, or I've heard students say, any yoga teacher who's been to any dinner party back when we used to have those, right? That um, people would say, oh, I'm not flexible, right? And they're just existing thinking that yoga is just this path with the body. Um, or, oh man, I, I've got kids and so I'd really be into the spiritual work, but I've got kids. And you can see right there with that one, like the, the like trap that this person has got for themselves. Like I used to think it, you know? Like, oh, meditation is for rich people. I don't have time, I'm a single mom. I'm 21, trying to like work three jobs and go to college, right? That was the belief that I held. But if you like, we can widen the lens and the belief then shifts and we start to see that having children is our practice, if that's our situation. Or caring for our aging parents is our practice, right? Or caring for this body when it's injured or sick or whatever is happening is our practice. And all of it, we begin to welcome all of it in this way that is more awake, right? But then, for me, the question lately that I've been thinking of, and this is a long-winded way to get of getting there, totally on brand, 
is, well, if we're welcoming all of it, how can we stay connected, though, to the humanness of our hearts when things go astray? Because spiritual materialism or spiritual bypassing would be um, someone in our life or ourselves are experiencing something that is difficult. And instead of staying in it, in the presence and in the emotions and in the like difficulty of it, we just say, ah, well, it's sacred, it's perfect, it's meant to be. And we skip over the humanness of it, not understanding that the humanness of it is, as Ram Dass says, the grist for the mill, right? The, the fodder we get to feed our spiritual fire with. Um, and I think it's so easy for some of us, and it is uh, tempting, right? Because it's hard to stay in it, in the joy, right? Because many of us are scared to stay in the joy or in the difficulty, because many of us are scared to stay in the difficulty and leap right to like, well, everything's perfect, it's as it's meant to be, it's as it's meant to be, it's a liberation practice, right? But we miss the actual grist that does the liberation, right? That frees us um, when we're not able to stay in our hearts. So just this morning, just this morning, like one I got up, here's my morning routine, the big reveal. I get up, I make a hot lemon water, I sit down and I meditate for 20 minutes right away, right? And I go for a run usually, even if it's just like a mile or something like that, just something to like wiggle my body Mm -hmm, to get things flowing. And on my run, I receive a text from a friend of mine um, that another friend of ours is on their way right now to get a kidney transplant to save his fucking life, right? Just this morning, just this morning. And it's in a text form, so it would be easy to like just flow by it and say, oh, great, yay, we've been expecting that. Yeah, it's been like kind of on the table. But instead I was like, oh my God, like this morning, just this morning, Like someone else has passed, and from that passing, another life might be saved. And how, like, gorgeous and amazing and just what a miracle it is. And then Veda texts me, my daughter, she's 19, she's living in New York right now, and um, she went up to Boston to help another friend get settled into an apartment. She's like, they want me to stay here in Boston, Mom. And should I stay here or should I go and do online classes or should I go back to my class? And I'm so um, with her in it. And I have this gut feeling like, no, I think you should go back to college, but I don't want her to take on my gut feeling because she like loves me. We love each other so much that it's very easy for us to become enmeshed and not remember the beauty in the separateness that I get to be me and she gets to be her. And that the space between us is where the love gets to exist. And so I'm like resisting texting her. No, no, you're not. You're going back to college. And I, um, and I don't. And I say, what's your gut? And then she calls me and she tells me that it's really tempting because it's this beautiful apartment on this like gorgeous old Cambridge street. And she'd get to live with people who go to Harvard, you know, and, and I listen. And then I just say, I say to her, what does your gut say? She says, my gut says to go back to my college. 
And so, and my, I, she asked me what my gut says, and I say, my gut says you should just go back to college, right? And so we're having this beautiful moment of closeness, right? Of not staying separate and using spirituality as a tool in which to stay separate, which is what spiritual bypassing is. It's showing up and being in, in the life. And so we have this morning just in this one life of my life like where there's like a kidney transplant going on and then a beautiful conversation of remembering um that two people can stay right in themselves and then that y'all also get very very close and discuss what matters um and so the question becomes, are we going to meet these moments of our lives from a distance or are we going to be brave enough to walk right into it and to get as close as we can to these moments of our lives? Can we take the risk of moving closer to the place where everything is okay, but then also it isn't, right? Um, I've been thinking a lot about skepticism because I've been reading this book by Leslie Jameson who I love, her sentences break me open. And I love it because her essays, um, she inserts herself into them and so it feels more authentic. Like you don't feel abandoned in the essay. You feel like she's right there with you. She's She, in her writing, is willing to practice that closeness, which is gorgeous. And she's writing um, about Joan Didion. And she says, coming of age as a writer, I had always loved Joan Didion's essay, The White Album, which famously begins, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. And less famously ends in pretty much exactly the same place. So she's saying, like, the essay doesn't really go anywhere, right? With Didion reiterating her suspicions about all of these stories and their false coherence as if it wasn't a point she'd already made several times. Eventually, I started to have my doubts about her doubt. I hated its smugness, how she positions herself as a knowing skeptic in a world full of self-delusion. I started to believe there was an ethical failure embedded in skepticism itself, the same snobbery that lay beneath the impulse to resist cliches in recovery meetings or wholly dismiss people's overly neat narratives of their own lives. I started to believe there was an ethical failure embedded in skepticism itself, right? And then I remembered um, that a teacher of mine once said that skepticism is lazy, right? Skepticism is when we get to pull ourselves out of the situation and pick it apart and use our minds, right, rather than our hearts and our souls (laughs) to be close to something. And it's easy to use our minds. It's easy to use our minds. Our minds, that's our number one job, is our minds are like, okay, yeah, like, I've got this. I can pick this shit apart. But we're staying separate when we do that. And that's what she's speaking to, that there's an ethical failure in skepticism. The etymology of skepticism was, this is so interesting, it comes from um, you would, uh, being a member of an ancient Greek school that doubted the possibility of real knowledge, right? So it's a group that is based on the practice of doubting rather than trusting. I love it, the skeptics, the Greek skeptics. Um, But it also, and this is so interesting because there's sort of a paradox 
built into this etymology where um, skepticism also comes from to reflect or to inquire or to look, right? And so can we look and stand close and be close? Can we look with more than our mind? Can we look with our hearts and with our guts and with that like sense of feeling? We tend to want to build barriers between the experience of our heart and our minds. Rather than being in the awe of the morning, right? Because that sometimes can be too much because sometimes the awe of the morning can mean being with feelings that aren't necessarily comfortable, can be being with a reality that isn't necessarily comfortable. And when we experience discomfort, it's much easier to go up into our minds and then to create distance, right? To inquire or to look from a place that is further away, right? And it is lazier. It takes more work to stay in it. Um, Yoga Sutra 216. Future suffering is to be avoided. Hayam dukam anagram. I think, I don't know. Um, Dukam is interesting. Dukkha, it means to suffer, right? The first noble truth of Buddhism is that this human experience will include suffering. This human experience is guaranteed to include suffering. And dukkha um, actually means the bad axle hole. (laughs) Right? So it's when it stops turning exactly as it should. (laughs) Right? When the flow stops, it's the bad axle hole. I love that so much. It's so gorgeous. (laughs) And it describes what it feels like when we stop being in the flow of experience. It's when we're caught up in the separateness. And it it, it is the bad axle hole, my loves. Right? Because when we're caught up in the separateness is when we can't, allow the flow of the day of our lit of our lives of whatever is occurring for us to happen we try and block it we become separate from it we will we build walls around it so 216 says future suffering is to be avoided is to be avoided it's a command and then 217 says because then you're like, well, oh my God, how? And then it goes back to what we started talking about in the very beginning, which is how is that you don't identify as just this body-mind. That you don't get the identity of who you are, that soul identity, confused with identifying with this stuff. But then we go back to that question. Okay, well, I'm not identifying with this body-mind, but how then do I stay in the humanness of this experience? Right? How do I stay close? How do I not get tripped up by um, the binary of everything, right? Yes, no. I like this. I don't like that. I should do this. I shouldn't do that. Um, this, that, like, how do we stop getting tripped up in the drama of that? (laughs) Um, and yet also 
stay close to the human experience that is like having feelings and being in our bodies and serving and being helpful. Um, and there's this, uh, when we stop getting tripped up right by all of that uh, binary stuff, it's hilarious. Uh, a friend of mine I, uh, who practices with Love Hive, she uh, came up from Mexico City and we went for a walk together and she said to me, my dad, who is a physicist, is reading some Alan Watts. And I told him you were coming over and that we were going to hang out. And he said, essentially, she couldn't remember exactly how he phrased it, but essentially the question was like, knowing all this, how does she live? <laughs> right? And I said to her, well, I drive myself nuts. And the, what I meant when I said that is that because when you, when you realize, when you really know deep down in your heart that you are not that I am not this body and I'm not this mind, that I actually am connected to something larger that is divine, is that when I see myself get caught up in the shoulds and the shouldn'ts and the yes and the no's, I'm like, oh my God, there I am doing it again. You know? And so there's this sense of humor that has to happen um, or else you're going to abandon the project really quick. right? And we get to laugh at ourselves and be like, holy smokes, there I am getting caught in the drama. Right? And when we're caught in the drama and the binary, it's a flag on the field to say, oh, I'm far away. The binary leads us away. The binary doesn't bring us close. And in every human interaction, in every human act, there's the potential to get closer and connect or to be divisive. We can stand outside of it or we can be in it. Right? And the goal is to be in it. Because by being in it, that is how we get free. Can we be brave enough to be in it? So, future suffering is to be avoided. Okay, so how do we watch, right, the humor of us, like, moving into the drama of it all? (laughs) Um, But then also stay close. And here's the, here's the thing, my loves, is that when we can stay, the heart chakra, this like hub of our being, this heart space, and I don't mean the um, anatomical heart, right? I don't mean your heartbeat. I don't mean um, anything that can be like grabbed onto physically in that way. What I mean is like your heart of hearts, the thing behind the thing. And it's so funny because um, I know immediately that you know what I'm talking about when I say I don't mean the anatomical heart. Because we can ask ourselves, what does your heart say? Like this morning when I asked my daughter, what does your gut say? And she knew what I meant, right? But it's not something that you can quantify. And so there's this trusting that our heart, this hub between the lower chakras and the upper chakras, this connection between our human experience, right, and our divine experience. This is sort of the, um, what are those called in electrical, the transformer station, right, of our bodies that gets the opportunity to have a conversation with both worlds and we get to trust that our heart has the capacity to hold it all. 
so that we can stay close, so that we don't abandon ourselves to the upper chakras or abandon ourselves to just the lower chakras, that we have the opportunity to experience both and that that is where the freedom lies. Right? So it's a staying close, staying in our hearts. Mm. Um, so I'm just looking at my notes here. Hmm. I think like especially uh, here in Portland, Oregon, there also becomes the game of how can I work on myself, right? And not get trapped in the working on myself. (laughs) Um, Can I work on myself as an act of compassion for all of it? And when we can bring it to um, this level of Will I work on myself so that I don't get in my own way? So that I'm, um, so that when something happens, like this morning when with the kidney transplant or my daughter needing the phone call, right? That I'm not so in my way that I am cut off from it all. And that becomes why we work on ourselves. Because when we can stay close, when we can stay connected that it is in that place where we can be most useful, right? Where we can make better choices, where we can move knowing that all of it is sacred, where we've lowered the bar for what is sacred, right? And when we do that, there's this intimacy that happens that is of much more service to the world than the disconnection. And that is why we work on ourselves. So that when we see ourselves get in our own way, this, that, yes, no, I like this, I don't like that, we can pause and be like, oh my God, I'm doing it, you know? And when we let go of that and surrender it, we can get closer. Um, And there's this um, St. Teresa of um, Avila, who was a mystic saint in Spain during the time of the Inquisition, my friends. She wrote this... um, book. Oh my gosh, I'm such a terrible Catholic sometimes. Um, I was raised Catholic. I'm not practicing now, but I still love um, to look into my lineage as a place to like connect with like where I came from in my past. And she wrote this book and she talked about the different mansions, right? Um, whatever that word is in Spanish, I don't know. But like the different houses spiritually that we can exist in. And the first house I'm just going to talk about the last two, but the first house is one where you realize that you are loved, right? You you realize that God loves you, that you are loved in this life, and it is just your very existence. It's just the experience of you, right, of that largeness inside of you that proves it to you. You don't, need, you don't need any other proof. You just, like, are beginning to know that, that God loves you. And that's, like, the first house, right? And she says that if you just stay in that first house, that you would, like, have led a good life. And I love that because it's so beautiful and forgiving. And then I think it goes up to the seventh house, um, the seventh mansion of the, of the rela- spiritual relationship. And that is when you're, like, fully immersed, probably as she was, Right? with divinity, that there is no separation, right? That there's this beautiful intimacy with the divine. 
And then the last line of that, which is so um, perfect, is then, but how can I help here? How can I be of service here? So it's even in the full immersion with the divine, like the most probable spiritual ecstasy that is beyond perhaps anything that you and I will know, um, that even then it is how can I still be in the world and stay close to what is actually happening in our lives. Um, So we'll end there. Let me make sure I didn't miss anything. (sighs) Ram Dass says that we listen through the forms of what's happening to us, right? So we listen for the sacred. We listen for that doorway to liberation through the forms of what's actually happening to us. And that's that call to presence that yoga offers us is the being able to be with and really intimate to the reality of what is. Dharma is the truth of what is, is that which supports me. The truth of what is, is that which supports me. That's my definition. Don't take that to the Sanskritists. (laughs) Um, But the truth of what is actually happening is that which supports me. So how can we be with ourselves um, in this morning, in this practice, and let, uh, and stay close to it, right? Um, Take what's on your plate and use it to get free, my loves. And use it to get free. Okay.